I think if there's any question that the patient's potentially resectable, then you should just put plastic stents in on that index ERCP. And that's probably the most important thing. Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode three with our physician guest, Uzma Siddiqui from University of Chicago, talking to us about hyalur stricture management. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Siddiqui, welcome to Endocast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And this, for the record, is our third podcast recording from EUS Live here in Orlando. All right. I'm excited. Well, it'd be great for the audience just to get to know you a little bit on a personal level before we dive into hyalur stricture management. So love to ask you a few questions kind of about, you know, where you grew up, you know, how you grew up, you know, how'd you get into interventional endoscopy? It'd be great to learn a little bit more about you. Well, we're doing this podcast in Orlando in Central Florida, and I actually grew up uh, very close uh, to Orlando in Winter Haven, Florida. It's about 40 minutes from here. Um, and I got into medicine and GI uh, because my entire family is composed of doctors, and my dad's a GI doctor, actually. So when I was a little girl, I used to go to work with him and watch him scope, um, and I used to attend DDW meetings, so I, I thought... GI and endoscopy, you know, were just the, the coolest things on earth. And I wanted to, to be a part of that world. Uh, but I didn't get interested in therapeutic endoscopy until I was a GI fellow at NYU. I was very fortunate that uh, one of my mentors there was Dr. David Deal, who's a well-known therapeutic endoscopist um, in Pennsylvania. And I was just so impressed uh, with his uh, endoscopic abilities and in the abilities of therapeutic procedures to help so many patients. And you were also always on the cutting edge of technology. So whatever newest scope or device that was coming out, you, you, know, you had the opportunity uh, to use those things. So putting everything together, I thought, you know, if I'm going to do GI, then therapeutic endoscopy is where I want to focus. Yeah, and what an opportunity to get to train under Dr. Deal as well. He's a, a legend in the GI yeah, space. Yeah, no, so. he's fantastic. How did you land at University of Chicago? So after NYU for GI fellowship, I did an advanced endoscopy year uh, with my mentors and good friends, Harry Eslanian and Priya Jamadar. And then I stayed on the faculty at Yale for six and a half years. Um, but I w I've always loved living in big cities. So for me, I knew I wasn't going to stay in New Haven forever. And the opportunity to work uh, at University of Chicago came up. And I love Chicago. It's a great city. I have a lot of family and friends. Uh, but it gave me the opportunity to work with Irving Waxman, who's a world-famous therapeutic endoscopist. And he created a center, or our centers, the Center for Endoscopic Research and Therapeutics in 2007. Um, and its sole focus is on advanced endoscopy. So for me, I get the opportunity to do what I love every day. So speaking of CERT, what is University of Chicago pioneering from a clinical and or research perspective? Our research focuses on clinical outcomes from our therapeutic procedures that we do every day. So our expertise uh, includes biliary stenting, 
managing pancreatic and biliary cancers, uh, endoscopic resection, and various EUS techniques. So that's also what our research focuses on. On the last podcast, Dr. Reichman walked us through best practices for diagnosis of cholangiocarcinoma. Assuming that you already have that diagnosis, how do you make the clinical decision to place plastic versus metal in the intrahepatic ducts? Well, I think first off, when you're talking about stenting uh, in the hilum, it's probably one of our more challenging ERCP procedures. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there is so much variability amongst different endoscopists on how they uh, perform stenting in that area, what stents they use, and what techniques. Um, And there's no consensus that one weighs better than the other. But I have a little bit of experience in this area, so I'm happy to kind of share my thinking process on how I approach them. So once I have a diagnosed hyalur cholangiocarcinoma, and I'm planning on stenting them uh, because they have jaundice uh, from the obstructing lesion, the first thing I want to think about, you know, the exact location of the stricture. Uh, What is it at the hilum? Does it involve the right side, left side? How extensive uh, is the stricture? And then then I'm going to think about, are they a surgical candidate or are they um, inoperable? So if there's any potential for them to go to surgery at all, or I'm doing that first ERCP and I just don't know the plan yet, I will always put in plastic stents because the last thing you want to do is take this patient from potentially a surgical candidate to not. Um, But say we have imaging, it shows that they already have metastases to the liver. This is clearly not going to be a surgical candidate at any point. Um, Those are the patients that will put metal in up front. If I do plastic and then I find out they're inoperable, then I'll change it to metal on the subsequent ERCP. So on that note, if you choose metal, there's a lot of different options out there and it's been well studied and there's still data all across the board. How do you approach this decision covered versus uncovered versus partially covered? And then of course you have the option to place braided stents versus laser cut stents. What's your thoughts on that? So anytime... um, I'm stenting in the hilum and above into the liver. I always go with uncovered stents. And again, the thinking there is that uh, you don't want to block off one lobe of the liver versus the other. So if you have uncovered, in theory, you'll allow drainage from all ducts uh, possible. So I always go with uncovered. And then in terms of braided versus laser cut, since I usually like to put my stents uh, in a bilateral uh configuration. For me personally, it doesn't really matter to me uh, whether it's braided or laser cut because I'm not going to try to do stent and stent where the laser cut has a little bit uh, larger uh, interstices to allow you to kind of dilate and get other stents through. So for me, it's not a big concern. So I, I know overseas and other areas of the world that the stent and stent technique or otherwise known as the Y configuration is used frequently why do you prefer to use bilateral versus a stent and stent technique? I, most of the stent and stent techniques uh, is reported out of Asia, I'll say, and they also have some specially designed stents uh, that we don't have here. But I don't have that much experience in that uh, technique, mainly because to me it seems very cumbersome uh, to try to uh, interlock those stents. So most of my experience, or all of it, is in placing bilateral stents. That's what we use mostly in the U.S. And so just as a follow-up to that, how do you decide whether or not to stent both branches or just one or the other? 
you mean both sides of the liver? Right. So again, if you have baseline imaging and uh, say one lobe of the liver is atrophied, you know that's not functioning, so you don't even have to bother stenting that lobe. Unilateral stenting should be enough. Um, that's an easy uh, marker. Now, in theory, you only have to drain 25% of the liver volume to get uh, resolution of jaundice. But when you're in the middle of the ERCP and placing your stents, you know, you may not know for sure that you're going to achieve that. So most of us, if we have an option and are able to, prefer to do bilateral stenting. Um, there was a study in 2017 out of Korea by a Dr. Lee. Uh, they did a randomized study of bilateral versus unilateral stenting, um, and they showed that you had less re-interventions and higher clinical success uh, if you place bilateral stents. It didn't uh, affect survival, but again, you're probably improving the quality of life of the patient if they don't have to get re-intervened on and get admitted and have occluded stents. So we try to do bilateral stenting. What are your thoughts on both length and diameter of metal stents placed in the intrahepatic ducts? So anytime I'm stenting into the liver um, with metal, I always choose either a 6 or 8 millimeter diameter, which is a little smaller than the 10 millimeter diameter I use for extrahepatic or distal bile duct strictures. And then my preference is to have the distal ends of the metal stents extend into the duodenum and have a transpapillary stenting. Um, but that means you need a long length stent. Um, the epic stents now are longer at 10 centimeters, and that probably would be the, the type of length we're talking. Obviously, if you're just going to leave them uh, intraductal, you can go for shorter lengths like six centimeters. Um, but again, when these stents become occluded, which they usually do, these patients are living longer and longer. So you're a year out and you have those stents are occluded, you have to get back in. It's definitely, in my mind, much easier if the stents are placed transpapillary, but then you got to pick a longer length. And then last point before we transition to the patients with plastic stents. You published data just recently at a University of Chicago on metal stenting. Can you just share with us a little bit about that study? Yeah, so that study uh, had uh, around, I think, like 290 patients, and it did include... Uh, all types of strictures, hyalur and extrahepatic strictures, but we looked at uh, partially covered metal stents versus uncovered metal stents, and also 8 millimeter versus 10 millimeter diameter. And our preference has been, um, when we're talking about extrahepatic strictures, especially to use partially covered stents, thinking that perhaps you get improved patency, but our data showed that there really was no difference in patency between stent coatings or stent diameters, nor was there any difference in adverse events. So, What about migration rates? Same in, in uh, both of them. Partially covered, we don't see that much migration as opposed to fully covered. But that paper is coming soon, fully versus partially. So, And, and where is your study going to be published? Our study, uh, it is published in Digestive Disease and Sciences. Great, thank so, you. And my fellow Steve Shama is the first author. So let's change directions real quickly and talk about the patients that get plastic stents during that index procedure. Diameter, length, what are your thoughts on that? So again, these are the patients I don't 
I don't know if they're surgical candidates or not. So if there's a chance of surgery, I put in plastic. And then I usually place uh, seven French stents. And again, longer lengths, typically 12 or 15 centimeters. Uh, it all depends on the angulation of the duct. Same with metal as well. Um, and if you have to uh, traverse a stricture in a tight turn, you need, it's better to overestimate the length um, because then you can always just leave some extra stent in the duodenum. So once you place the plastic stent, what's next for that patient over the next two to three months? So if it's a recently diagnosed cholangiocarcinoma, that patient will be seen by our surgeons, our oncologists, presented at a multidisciplinary tumor board. The oncologic plan will be made. So if that patient does not go to surgery and is deemed unresectable, they're going to get started on chemo. And for plastic stents, we bring the patients back uh, proactively in three months. Uh, obviously, if those stents occlude, we'll see them sooner. Uh, but when we bring them back in three months, again, at that point, if they're deemed unresectable, we'll switch them over to metal. Um, the other scenario where I might place plastic stents are if uh, we have both lobes of the liver that are functional, but for whatever reason on that index ERCP, I could only access one lobe of the liver. Uh, I prefer to just put a plastic in at that time because uh, I'm going to try again to get into the other side when I come back. And if you put uh, one metal in, then you, you box off the other side or make it more difficult to get in. How often do you see those patients? Do they come back another three months? And then uh, what percentage of those patients actually make it to the operating room? So in general, similar to pancreas cancer, probably about 20% are going to be surgical candidates. Um, and most and, and that's all cholangiocarcinomas. And that does include patients who have uh, tumors in the distal bile duct. And those are the ones who m probably more often will go to surgery than the hyalur tumors. Um, and then their five-year survival is probably less than 20%. Um, but for us, if there's plastic, we bring them back in three months. That's just our protocol for any plastic stents. Um, if the patient is amenable to it. Sometimes we'll add ablative therapies like photodynamic therapy or radiofrequency ablation. So then just a follow-up question to that. If the patient does make it to surgery, what's next for that patient? And then how do they fare over time? So with hyalur cholangios, uh, there's two potential types of surgery they could undergo in a very, very highly select group. They can undergo transplant. Um, and then in some cases, they'll undergo primary resection, and then they'll have uh, hepaticojejunostomies and altered anatomy. Um, if they undergo transplant, we may see them back if they have an anastomotic stricture. Um, and also with hepaticojejunostomies every now and then, uh, you can get an anastomotic stricture as well. And they may require additional techniques or double balloon enteroscopy to try to uh, dilate or stent those uh, strictures. Dr. Siddiqui, first off, thank you for joining us today. This has been fantastic. I know that the audience is going to get a ton out of this podcast. If you could leave us with just one key point from today's podcast, what would that be in management of patients with hyalur strictures? I think if there's any question that the patient's potentially resectable, then you should just put plastic stents in. If you're uncertain, you know, that you're draining uh, enough liver or you want to go back um, and re-intervene on this patient and have easier access, I think plastic, you'll, you won't get into any trouble. 
And you can always cross the patient over. Exactly, later on. So you don't burn any bridges with plastic. So that should be the initial go-to until you know if, uh, definitively what the plans are for that patient. Dr. Siddiqui, hope you enjoy the rest of EUS Live. Well, thank you for having me. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit us at endosuite.com. That's endosuite.com which features over 70 physician-led educational videos, including lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases, as individual results may vary. The law restricts devices to sale by or on the order of a physician. Indications, contraindications, Warnings and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device. Products shown for information purposes only may not be approved for sale in certain countries. This material is not intended for use in France only and by prescription only.